And I kind of, at that moment, I was like, if it's worth that much to you, it's probably worth a lot more. So that's the moment that I said, I'm gonna start my own company around Snort, and I'm gonna go build a, a business model that's gonna get people to wanna pay for something that's free. And <laughs> that, was, that was the moment. Welcome to the Decibel Podcast, the show where we bring founders together to talk about the personal journeys, the highs and lows, and the lessons learned along the way. I am so excited today to welcome my friend Marty Roche, the founder and CEO of Sourcefire. Marty created one of the very first commercial open source companies. I will say that Sourcefire eventually became a public company and then it was successfully acquired by Cisco. Marty has been a founder advisor here at Decibel and a great friend to us. So without any further ado, Marty, say hi to everybody. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast today, John. I appreciate it. It's kind of fun to talk about the old days and how things kind of came together uh, when doing this sort of thing was very far afield from normal. Yeah, let's start at the very beginning with your personal journey. So uh, maybe let's start with even where you grew up and then eventually what led you to start an open source project and then an open source company. Well, that's uh, so the, the real way back machine. So I got going on computers when I was very young. Uh, I think the first computer I had access to, and I grew up in Western New York. My dad was a school teacher. And through the school, I got my hands on an Apple II way back in the day. And one of the people who kind of showed it to me introduced me to BASIC right away. And I was probably somewhere between 9 and 10 years old and taught me how to write a calculator in BASIC. So I started messing around with that. And, and basically, I just kind of dabbled in computers and I thought they were interesting and fun. And it was cool that you could kind of get this machine to do whatever you wanted it to do if you kind of knew the right uh, um, things to poke. I remember you once telling me a story about how you were somewhat of a hacker uh, growing up. Yeah. Do you remember this story? <laughs> yes, I do. Me and my buddies used to play uh, laser tag and, you know, the laser tag receivers were only kind of, you know, one hemisphere. So we rigged them up so you could have two of them wired together so you could have a full 360 sensor. And I did a lot of the you know, the quote unquote electronics work with that, a lot of experimentation and, and uh, whatnot. You know, this is before the internet, so you couldn't Google it um, with wiring pieces of these sensors together and trying to figure out what would work and what wouldn't. Yeah. And so talk to me about how Snort came about. So Snort is your first open source project. And um, you, you were famously the original author of what eventually became one of the most widely used security tools. So where, where was its origins? So I was working for a government contractor at the time, and I finally had a cable modem at my house, and I was very interested in seeing uh, if anybody was knocking on my door while I was at work during the day. Um, so networks back then were a lot quieter, so this was something that you could actually do. So I started writing a sniffer, and I would leave it running and recording all the packets that came in. And I had written some sniffers before, but they were all kind of platform specific and things like that. So I wanted to write a platform agnostic portable sniffing program that uh, could basically record all the traffic that came in while I was out at work. And then I would kind of sift through the packets at night. It was called S. <laughs> and uh, I worked on it for about a month and I thought, hey, you know, and this is 1998. So uh, all of the kind of open source stuff was really out there and was gathering a lot of buzz. So the Cathedral and the Bazaar paper had been written and, you know, Linux was gaining momentum and things like that. And I thought, hey, it might be interesting to do an open source project. Maybe I'll release this open source, get a few emails. It'll be a fun little rainy days and weekends project. So I kind of packaged it up and learned how to use, you know, the tools to be able to get people to build on their own systems more easily. That's right, because back then there was no GitHub, right? So 
you know, it was a very, very different world to find people that were working on open source and to distribute it. Yeah. So there were kind of the early proto blogs almost. Um, so this is, you know, late 98. And one of the more popular sites of the day was a site called Packetstorm Security. So I contacted the guy who owned the site, a guy named Ken Williams, and I said, hey, I've just wrote this new sniffer. And I, I decided, hey, I'm going to call it Snort because the way it formats the packets in the printout, the display is kind of different than uh, like TCP dump and stuff like that. So this is a sniffer, but more. And what's a sniff, but more? Well, that's a snort. So I'm going to call this thing snort. <laughs> well named, Marty. Well named. Thank you. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I contacted Ken Williams and I said, hey, I just wrote this new sniffer called snort and I'm intending to, you know, like develop it. So uh, would you put it on your site? And he did. And he gave it front page billing and stuff like that. And it got a few downloads and I got a couple of emails and, you know, bug report feature request. So I started, you know, servicing the community uh, immediately as it developed and essentially, you know, just started doing releases, like adding features, doing releases. I started to add in intrusion detection features where you could tell it what to look for and it would tell you. Uh, when it saw it. So instead of just having all the packets to look through at night when I got home, I could like tag specific things that I was looking for. If I could maybe take a step back. So you had initially developed S, which then became Snort for your own purposes, right? You mm -hmm. wanted to be able to look at traffic on a network and do so in a repeatable way. Uh, you then thought it would be fun and interesting to make it open source. Other people responded well to that. What was the personal motivation for continuing to work on it and develop it? I think it's always interesting to understand where people came from and what was the passion that you had at the time for effectively giving away software for free and taking your time and energy and sharing that with the world? Well, the interesting thing was, maybe I'll put this tool out, maybe a few people use it, you know, I can put it on my resume. Hey, I wrote this open source thing. So I was a little bit motivated there, but the thing that really motivated me, quite frankly, was the feedback, because you got to understand when you work as a government contractor and you're a software developer, you know what life is like. It's like you get the specification in, here's what you're going to build. You build it, you deliver it to the customer, and you might not hear anything for six months to a year before these guys get back to you and say, hey, I, I tried your tool out, the installer didn't work. And then you rinse, repeat, you know, oh, geez, what happened? And you figure it out and then you give it back to them and they're like, you know. I see. So, I mean, this is this is way before agile development and continuous delivery and, you know, giving giving people the capacity to sort of innovate and iterate all the time. You know, you were as a contractor building custom software, shipping it, and then it took forever to get real feedback. Yes, like the, the typical response was radio silence for long periods of time. And with open source, it's like I put it out the next morning I had emails. I was like, ooh, okay, well, I can do this. And then, you know, put out another release and get more emails and, and so on and so forth. This is all done via email at the time and, and later IRC. But it hooked me. It was like, ooh, this is great. I can like get instant feedback on what I'm doing and I can respond to that and I can interact with the people who are using it directly. It's like, oh, this is so great. It's interesting, Marty, because, you know, today when people start companies, obviously the idea of taking five years to spec out a piece of software and to build it and to ship it, you know, that died with Windows Vista, right? So today I think people view the best practice for building a great product and having great product market fit is continuous feedback and iteration. And when I go back to when you did this, you know, there, there was not yet software as a service and cloud. And there, you know, there certainly wasn't the concept of, of agile development with SRE and DevOps. And it strikes me that like you fundamentally understood that you needed to get great customer feedback and that this was one of the best ways to do it back then. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did 23 releases of Snort in the first year it was out. Every two weeks I was cranking out a release and I was doing this all in my spare time. I actually had a day job. 
That is amazing. You know, I think every entrepreneur early on, they understand that they have to ship new features, but at the same time, they have to figure out how to ship quality and reliability. Uh, so there's always that trade-off of, I want to innovate, but then I've got to do as much QA as possible. And I've also got to make sure that I don't regress. And uh, I think one way that I like to ask this question is like, what, when did you know that, that Snort was popular? So I really didn't understand how popular Snort had become. And about, this was in the late summer, I think, of 99. So Snort was less than a year old. And the way that Snort happened was that I'd come home from my day job, do whatever uh, in the evening. And then, you know, Snort actually happened between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. typically. So I'd write code, I'd QA, I'd do my own testing and things like that. And eventually, one night, I just like phoned it in <laughs> and uh, pushed a release out. Uh, didn't QA it very well. When I woke up in the morning, I had like tons of email and it's like snorts broken here, snorts broken there. Uh, it doesn't compile on Spark anymore, you know, it's on OS and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, holy crap, where'd all these people come from? <laughs> it's like, whoa, do you, do you guys do so understand I'm sure that? you were some combination <laughs> of elated and terrified at the same time. Yes, I was because, you know, some of the, some of the email addresses were coming from, you know, bigbank.com and, you know, gov.mil. <laughs> so uh, it was like, holy crap, where, where did all these people come from? So is that what eventually led you to start a commercial company or then what happens? Well, okay. So shortly after um, that kind of aha moment, I start the snort mailing list and kind of like bring everybody together under one roof so we could act as a clearinghouse for all the, you know, what's going on with Snort. And thousands of people joined up right away and it was like, whoa, this is really cool. Um, shortly after that, I went to my first SANS conference, so SANS Institute. And while I was there, I got recruited to go work at a West Coast-based startup. And everyone says, Marty, we use Snort. Can we hire you? Well, it was actually, you know, I said, hey, my name is Marty Rush. And somebody went, holy crap, you're the guy who wrote Snort. <laughs> and they recruited me that weekend to uh, go work for that startup. So uh, yeah, that, that was interesting, but I was only there for a little less than a year. And that startup kind of collapsed. And when I came out of that, I announced that that email address didn't work anymore and everybody knew what that meant. So like the phone started ringing right away, like job offers were incoming. A lot of people knew who I was at that point. And I kind of, I got to the point where it was like, so I'd worked at the startup as employee, I think number 11. And I figured out pretty quickly, like the first few people in the door are the people who really make money at these startups if it goes well and you put your heart and your soul into it. And really startup culture, I fell in love with because it was just so dynamic and everybody was there to, you know, for the, the mission. Um, it wasn't like big companies, you know? So when I came out, it was like, you could go work for company X, Y, and Z. And, and you know, I had to kind of figure out where which path I wanted to take. And I kind of had just a few months before I had this first inkling of, you know, maybe I could start a company around Snort. And I had no idea what that company would do or how it would do it to get people to pay for this thing that was free. But that seed was kind of planted in my head. Eventually, two things happened. One, I saw a uh, the survey results from a SANS Institute survey. One of the questions was, check all the intrusion detection systems you're using. And Snort was checked 92% of the time. I was like, holy crap. And the other was this attempted buyout. Uh, you know, they put a pretty substantial, especially for me at the time, who'd never really had any money, um, pretty substantial cash offer plus stock to go bring Snort and work at this company. And I kind of, at that moment, I was like, if it's worth that much to you, it's probably worth a lot more. So uh, that's the moment that I said, I'm going to start my own company around Snort and I'm going to go build a, a business model that's going to get people to want to pay for something that's free. And <laughs> that was, that was the moment. Well, so we can all laugh now because it's become one of the more popular and one of the more successful ways to build a commercial company is to build it around open source, which begins with free software. 
But back then, that was highly controversial. So if I take you way, way back, so you have this successful project. I believe we're starting to head into the internet bubble bursting, right? So we go into 2000 and 2001. So this is this is not necessarily an easy time to start a company. And on top of that, you have a highly controversial business model, which uh, you know it's not yet widely known that startups can can build and sell software this way. So. Uh, what were some of the early objections, challenges? Take us back to those days. Okay, so um, I got Sourcefire up on its feet, founded in January of 2001. And um, the initial objections that I got out of the gate when I started trying to raise money was the only reason that people use this is because it's free, not because it's good. And I was like, mm, I, I've seen the competition. I actually think it's good and it's free. <laughs> the other big complaints were around, well, you know, what's to prevent IBM from taking your stuff and throwing a thousand engineers at it and building exactly what you're building? And I was like, my attitude about it, and it still is to this day, look, if you own an open source project and you are um, killed by somebody uh, using your open source project, then, you know, very cavalierly, I would say this was 20 years ago, you know, your company deserved to die. <laughs> like if you can't out innovate IBM with your own technology, then like, why, why are you here? So there was a, a lot of that, but ultimately like the investment community had a really hard time figuring out why anybody was going to want to pay for this because, you know, this, this kind of uh, value proposition model of understanding, especially in security, like people want the functionality, but with security functionality, very frequently what they really want is they want these functions, but they want to be able to do them uh, at some kind of scale. So what I really comprehended in the early days was that snort at the small scale solved problems, but snort at the large scale caused problems, and they're different problems. And enterprises, which happen to have a lot of money, are willing to pay for the solution to that problem because they, they really like the things that it does. They like the problem that it solves. So I didn't say it as, you know, like I didn't have all that on board back then, but that was just like my kind of my primal instinct uh, for this business model. Well, I, I do want to talk about the primal instinct because again, now we're we're 20 years later, and this is becoming you know the best practice, right? The best practice is that, that you know community driven, community led, product led adoption. These are now the waves that everyone's trying to ride in software. 20 years ago, it's highly controversial. You've got everyone saying this isn't going to work. What was it about your experience? leading up to that moment that allowed you to do something in spite of everybody telling you that it's not going to work or at its best, it's just highly controversial. I feel like I had an insight into the problem, like a, a depth of insight into the problem that very few people really had. And that business model really would work because I did understand what the actual problems that people who are deploying these systems really have. And I think that's a, a customer empathy thing. Um, you know, we talk about customer empathy now. Uh, we didn't really talk about it back then, but I used to say this once in a while. You, you know, my customers have headaches, Sourcefire sells aspirin, right? We sell your headaches and we do it in something that you pay for. So I guess I understood what the value was better than the people who were saying, no, no, there is no value there. And because you've never done it right before, every answer is possible. Whereas the people who've been successful before, they tend to look to doing things the way that have worked in the past. So when you're unencumbered by success, it's, you know, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, right? Uh, <laughs> yes. You, just, you can do whatever you need to do to be successful and you don't worry about um, kind of, you know, the conventional wisdom. Yeah. May I ask, were you able to sustain that fearlessness uh, over the last couple of decades? Do you feel like with some success, you somehow change? Or do you feel like sometimes maybe we can even get calcified in our thinking? Well, I think I largely have, you know, I'm definitely more conservative than I used to be because I know the answers now, right? So I, I am no longer unencumbered by success. I, I'm actually encumbered by success. 
Um, so I have to be cognizant. I think it's like an introspection thing, right? You have to be willing to call BS on yourself because that's the the only way that you kind of stay flexible. Like, so you have to be willing to re-examine your beliefs periodically. And some beliefs are kind of fundamental. How you have to build a balanced organization, you know, it's so common in the security world for, you know, the guys who wrote the technology to go out and start a company and refuse to admit that, you know, go to market's actually really important. In fact, that's the engine that keeps the company going. The engineering provides the vehicle to people wanting to pay money, but that whole go-to-market organization actually is invested in getting the money. <laughs> like engineers, like one of the things I learned early on in SourceFire is that you know nobody in the organization understands each other's jobs, especially outside of the functional groups, and they have no respect for each other. Right, so the engineers don't respect the sales guys; they don't know what they're doing all day. Same for the you know the engineers are just typing all day. Why is this taking so long? And the sales guys are just taking people out to dinner all day. Why is this you know why? Aren't well, let, we let's talk. Money? Let's talk about this because you know some things have changed, but some things have stayed the same, Marty. And I, I do think today. As people are trying to learn from best practices, you know, you were one of the the first to really build a product-led company. And then eventually, you know, that became a very successful monetized and go-to-market-like company. So, you know, this, this tension, these trade-offs, uh, you know, they still exist today, right? Of like, what, you know, what should we be giving away for free? How loyal to the community should we be? So, you know, what were some of the experiences that you had? And looking back, what are some of the lessons learned that you'd pass on to people? So uh, once again, I kind of had a uh, dictum and the core dictum was snort will always be free. So, you know, as we brought people in from kind of the normal software industry to work at SourceFire and things like that, I would tell them, look, if you're thinking, you know, God, this feature we just put in snort is too hot to give away for free, like clear your mind because it's going out the door and we're not charging for it. Because Snort was the kind of, uh, it wasn't really a loss leader. It was the thing that got focus. It got attention, right? Um, and what I mean by that is that if we could engineer the best Snort that we could possibly engineer and attack the intrusion detection and prevention problem as hard as we could in this piece of free software, then we are the standard that everybody relies on and that everybody learns on. And as a result of that, when they have the problems that we solve, they'll be wanting to come to us to do it. So the important thing would be to keep everybody's focus on Snort. And the best way to do that is to build the absolute best program, you know, software, free software that we can, and never hold back on features, never hold back on capabilities that are in the system, because that's how you end up kind of like losing the plot. Like you get into this whole, um, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin thing where you sit there uh, trying to figure out, well, should this feature go in free or should it not go in free and stuff like that? Nope. Snort's free. Anything like we compile it in this code base, it goes out the door for free. I don't care if I just invented, you know, uh, a terabit per second uh, pattern map or something fusion, like that. Right? Yeah, whatever cold fusion, right? Yeah. Whatever right. it is, going out the door for free, don't care. Because the thing that people are actually paying us for, once again, is manageability, scalability, performance, automation, and support. That's where we make our money. Snort is the thing that keeps all eyes on us and essentially farms our future customers. So that kind of distinction, I think, you know, as a dictum, it's really important uh, that everybody understand it. There is no debate. This is just how the world is. Let's figure out how to monetize around that as opposed to kind of 
like trying to look at all the tea leaves and figure out, well, this, you know, this feature should be open source, but that feature should not, because that's kind of the path to madness. You end up in these giant meetings where everybody's trying to figure out what should be, you know, in there and what shouldn't be in there and things like that. Do you believe there has to be a dictator model, meaning somebody has to just draw the line in the sand every time and say, this will always be free. These will always be available to the community. I know for sure that over time, companies become bigger. There are more stakeholders. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the founder still has a strong voice, but there are other voices in the room. And I, I know everyone out there feels this tension of, you know, we, we need to at some point create commercial success for everybody, but at the same time, we have to stay true to this vision. And I know that you lived this for almost two decades. Yes. Um, I think the... I think the benevolent dictator model, I mean, you know, maybe I'm a particularly benevolent dictator, but I think it really works. <laughs> like, um, I need to get you a t-shirt that says that. Yeah. I'm a particularly good benevolent dictator. Yes, I, I would wear that t-shirt for sure. <laughs> um, but it's it's important because as soon as you kind of dilute that uh, that absolute authority, especially for you know a critical component like Snort, then it's always possible to be undermined in ways that really undermine the overall mission. So I think that's an important kind of aspect of it. And also, when you have a benevolent dictator, the buck does stop at that person. Maybe they drive the you know company off a cliff by accident, or you know you recover. Right? That's that's always the danger when you become reliant on kind of one person for uh, something key, or they you know they leave. Uh, and, you know, kind of frees up the organization to do whatever it's going to do. But then you've got, you know, it's kind of King Lear problem of, you know, like who runs the kingdom. Uh, can I ask, because now that, you know, you can look back on effectively being not, not just a successful entrepreneur, but also a pioneer in an industry, what were some of the highest highs on that journey? And then also what were some of the lowest lows along the way? Hmm. Okay, let's see. You know, I, I would say raising my first Series A was a pretty uh, high high. Um, but it was kind of couched in like exhaustion. <laughs> so when I raised the Series A for Sourcefire, I had never raised round of venture capital before, and I was doing it completely by myself. Uh, I had no executive team to work with, had no support. It's just me. And remind everybody, this is 2001, 2002. This is when it, it's the Great Depression in tech, right? The, the oh, yeah. bubble had just burst and there was, you know, I think there was a thousand venture capital firms in 2000 and there was only about a hundred left by 2001. Yeah, right. They called it nuclear winter. And, you know, you roll yeah. in with an open source story and everybody's like, oh, the door's right there. <laughs> Have a nice day. Please get out. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So I got a, a uh, initial tranche from my Series A. And then I went out and I hit the road and I engaged 18 different VC firms. I got four term sheets and I eventually took my Series A round. And um, that was that was pretty exciting, although, you know, once again, it's very couched in kind of the day to day, just, you know, I'm trying to hire, I'm trying to build this company, I'm trying to get all this stuff going. And finally, I think when we went public uh, in 2007, that was a big moment as well. I really uh, enjoyed that. That was, you know, going from zero, like literally operating out of my living room to uh, being a public company in six years was pretty crazy. That was great. I think the the Cisco acquisition was uh, was another great one. I remember that morning getting up and you know we popped the news out for everybody and brought Sourcefire, you know, all the people together and things like that. But I remember my uh, my phone being down to about ten percent by uh, eleven o'clock in the morning from just this giant flood 
of text messages and emails and phone calls and everybody in the world giving me the uh, the attaboy. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. You know, uh, lowest lows. Let's see, there were a few of them. I think. Um, well, my uh, my second CEO uh, passed away. He uh, he developed uh, colon cancer, and yeah, that was just that was really rough because you know he was a good friend of mine, and it was hard to handle on a personal level. But I also had to be to some degree the chief mourning officer for the companies, and you know delivered a eulogy at the funeral and all this other stuff. It was a very difficult time for me personally. Uh, there were also. Um, you know, there were some other times when the markets crashed in 2008, you know, Sourcefire as a public company, we bottomed out at $3.89 a share. I remember that. Actually, um, you know, and you kind of wonder, you know, what's going to happen to us at that point. Uh, and, you know, a year later, we were one of the top four fastest growing stocks on uh, NASDAQ, actually, which was another high. And by the time we got acquired, our daily number was around 55 bucks a share and we got acquired for $76 a share. So, you know, just a huge success story over really a, a fairly short amount of time, five years. You know what I think is interesting, Marty? Do you remember that the company was going to be acquired by Checkpoint? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then it got blocked by Cepheus. And I know that that's more common now, but um, did that feel like it was a gift at the time? I mean, clearly it was, but uh, maybe at the time it felt like that was a huge setback or a low point for the company. Uh, actually, no, not not for me. Uh, I I wasn't sad when that deal fell through. I thought we had a, a lot of uh, potential on possibilities. Oh, so that's so great! It was announced in October of two thousand five. So Sourcefire is like a four year old company at this point, and uh, it fell apart in March of two thousand six when we went public in March of two thousand seven. So, um, y- you know, like. The board really wanted the deal. They thought it was a good deal. It was a $225 million cash deal for really what was a small company at the time. And, you know, it's not a bad deal. Yeah, I didn't like it. I just felt like we had so much more in us. Like it felt, it almost felt like surrendering. And then the day where, you know, we found out Seafuse was like, this isn't happening. uh, That was actually one of the better days because I was like, yeah. Okay, cool. We got a lot of, we got a lot of fight left in us. Oh, that's um, a great story then. That's a great story. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Looking back now, do you have any lessons for your younger self, things that you want to pass on to the younger version of you or maybe founders who are like you who are out there today? Well, don't split your Series A into two tranches, that's for sure. It should be a Series A and a Series B. Left, uh, left a lot on the table with that one. Well, I mean, so, what, remind everybody, like, what, you know, how, what was a Series A back then? I mean, it must have been tiny, right? I mean... It was uh, 7.65 million was my Series A. So yeah, it was pretty small. I think... From a lessons learned standpoint, you know, one of the one of the interesting things I, w- I would say is that so right back in the beginning, before I had an executive team, before I'd taken my Series A, um, you know, I was having a real hard time finding mentorship, and I had no idea what I'm doing. I don't have a, I have a degree in computer engineering and literally no other education. It's not even a master's; it's just a bachelor's. And um, so I read one management book ever, Peopleware, and uh, so I'm running this company, and I'm like desperate for people to tell me like, how, how do you do business? <laughs> So I, uh, I got in front of this executive and he, um, you know, I was having lunch with him and I was like, okay, oh, great Yoda of business. Tell me the secret to being successful in business. And he was like, hire good people. I was like, what? That's it. And, um, you know, that, that actually is very, very true. Like the strength of your organization is the strength of the people in it. And that sounds a little corny, but like, if you have a, 
uh, just an all-star team, you know, you've got a much better chance of being successful if than if you've got a bunch of people that you feel like, you know, you're always the smartest guy in the room and things like that. I never want to be the smartest guy in the room. I really want to have people in there who are way better at their jobs than I could ever be. Because that means when we all come together, like we can drive the whole organization forward much more effectively. But there's a converse to that, which is don't hire bad people. And don't hire bad people actually isn't necessarily like... Um, you know, bad at their job, uh, they could be bad for the organization. So maybe they're really good at their job, but they're also very toxic for the organization. Like they really break down kind of the cohesiveness of the internal culture of the organization, the ability of people to work together. I've seen that more than once. And it's very hard to pick up on, but you know, you really got to go with your gut on uh, on a lot of those things. Because like, if you're not enthusiastic about hiring uh, somebody, especially somebody senior in the organization for a reason, you really got to listen to your, to your gut on that. So you know, be smart about how you take investment, like get good legal advice. Uh, I didn't have that in the early days either. <laughs> you got to understand like 2001, 2002, those were the years of uh, no money, no clue and no hope. Like we were just <laughs> like a, a, a leaf in a stream, just kind of twisting around, waiting for things to happen to us, bouncing off the shore and stuff like that. And, you know, we got through it uh, through, you know, I don't know, a little bit lucky, a little bit good. But the people that you bring to the table are really going to define how successful you, you can possibly be. And it's really important to, to nail those down. And it's very easy to, to blow that. Yeah, no, I do think sometimes founders think that it's a reflection on them if they made the wrong hire. But I think what you're rightly saying is it, it's it's just such a stronger signal when you make a quick decision and let everybody know that you're looking out for the organization and that we all make mistakes, but the key is to make them quickly. Yeah. You know, we talk about ego. Humility is a, is a big part of it too. Like, you know, one of the things that our, our mutual friend, uh, Harry Weller liked about me was that I was always willing to say when I didn't know something. Um, the first partner meeting that I did at the VC firm that ended up leading the Series A in Sourcefire, I got in the meeting and they were like, what's your revenue last year? I said, X. And they said, what are your bookings? And I said, X. And they were like, do you know the difference between bookings and revenue? I was like, no. What's the difference? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> you just got like, you know, once again, you can't be successful if you're only like, oh, well, of course oh, I know what it is and you don't. Story. Right? I mean... <laughs> didn't know there's all sorts of stuff i don't know like you, nobody knows everything and especially if you're doing it for the first time and you're like you're an excellent systems programmer but you don't really know finance like you got to tell somebody i don't really know finance please teach me and i did that at sourcefire i hired all these excellent people and i watched them do their jobs and i let them teach me and you know and i was always willing to admit i have no idea how you do your job please teach me like the basics of it so i can at least be conversant awesome uh i have two last things i just want to cover so first Near the end, I always like to give everyone a chance to talk about what gives them passion today and how they like to give back. Well, so I do a fair amount. So uh, I do a lot of advisory work um, for uh, uh, first-time entrepreneurs. Um, I actually have had a lot of people reach out to me over the last few years, especially, uh, and ask me for help getting them started, You know, whether it be introductions to uh, investors or investing myself or just advice on like how to, um, how to do it. Like, a lot of people, once again, they come from the engineering side, especially in security. They come from the, the technical side of the world. And the question of how to do it, how to build a business and all the pieces that are required to do it are actually pretty complicated, right? As you know, uh, you know, it's, it's not just building a great product. It's marketing and sales and operations and finance and, you know, uh, AR and uh, accounts payable and, you know, all, all the all the stuff. So like 
understanding that and like getting somebody who can advise you just like I was looking for 20 years ago when this guy was like, oh, hire good people. That's that's a big deal. And so I couldn't find that, especially out here on the East Coast. I couldn't find that 20 years ago. So I try to be one of those people and I'm advising several companies and, you know, I get on the phone with them anytime they need me and uh, talk through things with them, talking about investing and talking about structuring the company or even go through technology decisions that they're trying to make. You mentioned one other thing that I do want to talk about. You mentioned that you are now encumbered by your success. Are there things in your career you look back on and you say, I learned something, but now with the fullness of time, I, I now have enough wisdom to know that I need to unlearn certain things? Yeah. So for example, as I've been looking at, you know, the next step of my journey, I'm, you know, evaluating market conditions and things like that. So one of the things that I didn't know when I started Sourcefire was that it was extremely foolish to start Sourcefire because it was a market that had already, you know, the intrusion detection market, that battle had already happened. There were winners and losers, the market had shaken out, the acquisitions had happened. So it was kind of a, a done game, but you know, and if I had known that at the time, if I had seen the progression of the, the market, I would have said, mm, probably don't want to go into intrusion detection. But there was an opportunity there because the first generation vendors were, you know, not actually really great and people still wanted to attack the problem, right? That's so, right. That's right. In some ways, because everybody thought it was a done deal, there was not as much innovation. So it Right. Innovation dropped off in. the cliff. Yeah. So as I go into this new opportunity, I start surveying the market and looking where uh, the TAM is, like where my total adjustable market is, and it's big versus small, and where there's market opportunities and things like that. And to some degree, especially in the security space where almost nothing is greenfield, like there's very, very few times where something that's really net new happens. Um, you know, you, you look for the opportunities, and I say this kind of flippantly, but I, you know, it's actually quite true. Uh, you've got to look for opportunities to suck less. You've got to find technologies that suck, that are, you know, a real pain in the ass for their users to use, and look where there's opportunities to essentially, you know, do something else um, and do something better and innovate and really bring uh, a new way of thinking to the table. So the thing that I have to be careful about really is being too careful and, and you know, understanding there could be a large TAM that's poorly served by the existing vendors out there and going after it despite the fact that a market space could look fairly ossified when you're kind of looking at it from the outside or Gardner doesn't like it or, you know, all these things that we are trained to look for from being in the industry for 20 years, you know, what are the analysts think? What are the, what's the market like? So yeah, just like not being afraid to move, I think is a, uh, you know, not being too smart essentially or too, too savvy about the market, I think is, uh, is one of the things that you got to be really careful about because that's where you miss opportunities and disruption opportunities and things like that. Excellent. Well, uh, Marty, you've been a real inspiration to a lot of founders. You've been an inspiration to me. I really, really, really think that it is amazing what you've done to help create an industry around open source software and convincing people that the power of the community can be an even more powerful force in commercialization than anything else. So I really enjoyed having you on this podcast and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, John. It was a fun conversation. I really enjoyed it.